Last week we saw a vision of the Lord of the church, the risen Jesus. The Apostle John received this vision while he was on the island of Patmos. He was instructed to write what he sees and then to send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And what John sees is not only what he has seen in chapter 1, it includes all that he's going to see in the rest of this book. But before John sees anything more, Jesus gives him an introductory message for each of the seven churches. That's what we're going to find in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus addresses each of the churches individually. And you might want to turn there and have a look. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1234, and in the large print, 1914. These messages in chapters 2 and 3 have often been referred to as the letters to the seven churches. But that's a little bit misleading. And the reason it's misleading is because the whole book of Revelation is a letter to the churches. All of it is to the seven churches. And so before we look at these letters, uh, there I am, joining in, before we look at these messages individually, it's worth asking, what are they here for? If the whole letter is for the churches, what's the purpose of these seven messages near the start? How are they connected to the rest of the letter? I think we can answer that question like this. The bulk of this book is about war. It's about war between God and anything that opposes God. And it ends, finally, with God's eternal victory over all that opposes him. And as I say that, it might be easy for us to think, well, we're just called then to sit back and watch this great war unfold. But these seven messages are here to tell us we can't do that. This book is about war, and these messages make it clear the church is to participate in this war. And these messages also show us how we are to participate. So as a general heading to the seven messages, we could say, Christ calls his church to war. The churches described here are quite different from one another. Their circumstances are different, and the challenges they face are very different. But they are all called to battle in their specific situations. And we might wonder as we look at these in our Bibles, well, what about the order of the seven churches? Is there any significance to the way they're listed? Well, part of the answer is they're listed in the order that the postman would arrive at these churches. This map, which you may or may not be able to read, shows the seven churches. And the order in Revelation is the order someone would get to them if they were following the Roman road. That's allowing for 
detours around mountain ranges that aren't shown there on the map. But having said that, there is just a bit more to it than order of delivery. Because when we look at the list, we find an order to the condition of these churches. What we will find is that the first and last churches are in a particularly bad state. They're in danger of being closed down by Jesus. They're just about in the red zone. Then the second and sixth churches, we will discover, are weak in human terms. But they're doing well spiritually. Of the seven, these are the only two that aren't rebuked for something they're doing wrong. They're in the green zone. The challenge for them is to stay faithful. Then each of the middle three churches are what we could call mixed congregations. In these messages, Jesus doesn't give an assessment of the church as a whole. He says some people in these churches are doing well. And some people are way out of line. And so these middle three fellowships are called to be united as one body that's faithful to Christ. We could say they're in the orange zone. There are things they need to give serious attention to. And what all of this tells us is that every church is going to see itself somewhere in these messages. Most churches are going to see themselves plenty of times. And that underlines something we've seen in recent weeks. It's that by addressing these seven local churches, Jesus is actually addressing the whole of his church. The struggles and challenges faced by these first century churches represent the struggles and challenges of the church throughout the world and throughout history. I know some of you have looked at these messages before and you've come away quite disturbed by them. And so before we read the first message together, I want to give you a word of encouragement that comes from the last message. Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 19, Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So as we look at these messages over the next few weeks, and as we hear along the way some stern challenges from Jesus, always keep this in mind. Jesus speaks to rebuke and discipline his church because he loves his church. These seven messages are not here to crush us. They are here to call us to war against all that opposes God. And we'll learn that that war has to begin in our own fellowship and ultimately in our own hearts. So with that background to these seven messages, let's read the first one together in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. As we go through these seven messages, we'll see they follow quite a standard format. And the first thing that's standard is that all of them are addressed to the angel of each church. Last week I said it's most likely these angels are the spiritual beings that are mentioned throughout Scripture. We read earlier in Hebrews that they are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And it seems one of these angels has been assigned to each local church. But we might ask, why is each message addressed first to the angel of each church? It seems to be a way of making clear to the church themselves that the Lord of the church keeps his angels well aware of what his church needs. And he's able to do that because he knows his church. Look again how Jesus describes himself in the middle of verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. Another feature of these messages is that they all start by picking up on some part of the vision we saw in chapter 1, the vision of the risen Christ. All seven mention something about Jesus that John saw or heard in chapter 1. And here, it's the fact that Jesus holds the seven stars in his hand and he walks among the seven lampstands. Chapter 1 told us the stars represent the angels and the lampstands represent the churches. And the significance is Jesus Christ tends his churches. Just like the priest in the Old Testament tended the lampstand in the tabernacle. And the angels assigned to the churches are under Christ's authority. They're in his right hand. And the result of this is that Christ knows his churches. He's able to say, I know your deeds. 
In fact, he's going to say to all seven churches, I know this or that about you. The message to Ephesus comes from the one who knows his churches. This is important for us too. As a church, we need to live with the realization that Jesus really does know us. There is reassurance in that. We have his attention. We're not like the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. You may have heard the story when they stand on Mount Carmel, desperately trying to get the attention of their god, Baal. And they fail. We're told they shouted, they danced, they even sliced themselves with knives, all to get Baal's attention. And after a while, Elijah began to taunt them. He said, maybe Baal's deep in thought. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on the toilet. Shout louder and maybe he'll notice. But he never did. Our God is not like that. He's the one who walks among the lampstands. He knows his church. We don't have to shout and dance and wail to get his attention. And along with the assurance that brings us, it is sobering. Because it means we can't fool him. We can't sweep things under the carpet and hope that he doesn't notice. I heard last week talking to one of you about a journalist who was investigating some dubious things going on in his church. Uh, Not in his church, but in another church. And when the church leader realized there was an investigation going on, he threw the journalist out. That leader didn't want things examined too closely in his church. But we can't take that approach with Jesus. He will not be frog-marched off the premises. He knows everything that goes on, good and bad. So what have we achieved if we manage to fill the whole world? How does that help us since Jesus knows the truth? Always. Well, what does he know about this church in Ephesus? He knows they're a church pure in doctrine, tough during hardship, but lacking in love. Jesus knows the positives about this church. And they're very significant positives. Look again at verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. It'll help us to have a little background on the city of Ephesus. The city was a center for learning, and it was a center for the occult. 
It was famous for being the magic capital of the ancient world. And at the center of all of that was the worship of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. She was also known as Diana. Ephesus was home to a massive temple to Artemis. It was the largest building in the Greek world. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So when people from Ephesus came to faith in Jesus, that was the spiritual background they were coming out of. And apparently, they really did make a clean break with it. The book of Acts tells us that during Paul's ministry there, new Christians brought together all their scrolls about magic and they burned them publicly. Whenever Paul left, he gave a warning to the elders of the Ephesian church. Because he knew very well they would be under pressure from false teaching. It's inevitable in that kind of an environment. Some people are going to try to blend the old sorcery with the new Christianity. And so this is how Paul warned the church leaders. He says, I know that after you leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. That was Paul's warning in the early days of this church. And here in Revelation, a few decades later, we discover they have taken his warning very seriously. Jesus says in verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Because of their background, These Ephesian believers have a bit of a nose for false teaching. They can sniff it out when they find it. And down in verse 6, Jesus says, You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's an amazing commendation. Jesus says, You hate the same thing I hate. We'll hear about the Nicolaitans again in these messages to the churches. Apparently, they taught that it was okay for Christians to be involved in a little bit of Artemis worship here, a little bit of occult stuff over there. That was okay. But Jesus says to the church, you haven't gone along with that. You've shown you hate that kind of teaching. And good for you, because I hate it too. This is a church that tests what it hears. And they don't put up with false teaching. They're rigorous about being doctrinally pure. And they have guts. They persevere in a very difficult environment. Verse 3 says they go through hardships for the name of Christ. One writer says, they're a hard-working, tireless, enduring, discerning, truth-loving, lie-hating congregation. What more could Jesus expect of them? Surely, they must be in line for some sort of award from Jesus. 
You might think that, but actually the opposite is true. Look what Jesus says to them in verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus is not bringing an award. He's threatening to shut this church down. So whatever it is they're lacking, it's not a minor issue. It's enough for Jesus to pull the plug on this church. In spite of all their perseverance and all their doctrinal purity, this church is in the red zone. So what are they lacking? What could possibly outweigh all of their good points? Look again at it in verse 4. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. This church has got so much right. But in their good concern to endure hardship, they have allowed themselves to become hard-hearted. In their appropriate hatred of wickedness, They've lost their first love. It's so easy to do. Martin Luther said, the church is like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. He climbs up one side and falls off the other. The point is, we can be so focused on doing well in one area, we end up falling down in another. Later on in these messages to the churches, we'll hear about a church that's so focused on loving, they're letting go of the truth. Here in Ephesus, it's the other way round. So let's think about it this way round. If we apply this to ourselves, we as a church are rightly concerned to get our beliefs right. We know the dangers of compromising the truth. We know it's foolish to set aside truth to try and please the culture around us. And Jesus has reminded us here, the truth is vital. He hates the practices of the Nicolaitans. The Jesus of the Bible is not some kind of hippie who just goes along with whatever's going on. There are things Jesus doesn't tolerate. And we are not to tolerate them either. And I think that by and large, we get that as a church. And we get the stuff about hard work and perseverance. But in the midst of all that, could Jesus say to us, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Well, as we try to answer that, we might ask ourselves, what kind of love is Jesus talking about? Love to God? Is that what he means? Love to one another? Or does he mean love to those outside the church? Which is it? I really don't think we need to choose between them. 
Actually, I don't know if we can separate them. They go together as a package. Genuine Christian love will reach upward to God. And it will reach inward to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it will reach outward to those who are lost without Christ. The danger of being alert for false teaching and of staying tough under pressure is that we lose our childlike love for our Father in Heaven. We lose our patience with weaker brothers and sisters. And sometimes we start to hate the people out there who are blinded in unbelief. And so when we hear about Islamic terrorists attacking magazine offices, maybe we start to hate Islamic people. When we realize the church is full of imperfect people, maybe we start to become bitter about all their imperfections. Being pure in doctrine and tough during hardship doesn't have to mean we're lacking in love. But it can happen. Like climbing up one side of the horse and falling off the other. And so let's ask ourselves, are there any traces of these things among us as a church? Coldness toward God. Bitterness to brothers and sisters. Hatred to outsiders. The only way we can really answer that is by asking ourselves, is there any of this in my own heart? And when we find traces of lovelessness, notice what Jesus says we're to do about it. In verse 5, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. This is not how our culture talks about love. Our culture tells us you either feel love or you don't. Love can come and go. You can't really do anything about it when it goes. Have you ever heard a love song that says, I've lost my love for you, and I'll do whatever it takes to find it again? But that is what Jesus tells us to do. We are not to wait for love to find us. We are to do things to stir love up again in our hearts. If we start by thinking about love for God, One of the reasons we gather together on Sundays is to spur one another on in our love for God. But Sundays or Thursdays by themselves aren't enough for us. George Mueller once said, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. George Mueller didn't wait for the warm glow to find him. He went in search of it, first thing in the morning, every morning. How did he do it? 
Well, he opened a book written to him by the lover of his soul. That's what the Bible is. And as George Mueller read, he was reminded again of the love of God. How wide and long and high and deep it is. And he responded by talking to the one who loves him. That's what prayer is. In Psalm 63, David says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. David was not passive about his love for God. He went after the lover of his soul. And wasn't that what we were like? If we think back to the early days of our Christian lives. Didn't we seek after the lover of our souls? And here Jesus says, if your love is cold, repent. Don't just decide you're going to live with it. Repent of it and do the things you did at first. At the FIEC conference this year, one of the speakers encouraged us all to sing to God. Not just on Sundays, but privately too. As we read and pray, we can let that lead us into song. And I don't think Jesus minds if we mess up the tune. That can help us to stir up our love for our Savior. We can read Christian books that stir up our love for God. What about love for our brothers and sisters in Christ? We spent lots of time on this recently in Romans. And if you wondered at the time how important all of that was, now we know, don't we? So if your love for others is cold, the way forward is to find out about people. Pray for them. Find ways that you can serve them and encourage them. And then there's our love for those outside the church. They need Jesus. So let's talk to them. Not just as targets, but as real people. People who are made in the image of God and who are filled with spiritual needs that only Jesus can meet. The church that doesn't love people enough to evangelize will be a church that dies. No matter how doctrinally pure it is or how tough it is during hardships it will die Jesus says he will shut down loveless churches he will remove their lampstand they will no longer exist as lights in a dark corner of his world So when our love begins to grow cold, we dare not decide we're going to live without love. We have to fight to get it back. I said earlier that each of these messages to the churches is a call to war. 
And I realize in the current cultural climate, we can be misunderstood when we talk about war in a religious setting. But there's no hint here of a call to physical violence. Here in the very first message, the call to war is a call to love. That is how the church in Ephesus is to participate in the war against everything that opposes God. They are to fight the lovelessness in their own hearts and in their church fellowship. We are right to say this is a call to war because that's what Jesus calls it. Look what he says in verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's not just Ephesus, but the churches, plural, who are called to be victorious. We could translate it, the one who conquers, or the one who overcomes. However we translate it, it is war language. Lovelessness is opposition to God. It has to be conquered in the church and in our own hearts. And Jesus says to Ephesus, this is your battlefield. This is your front line. Jesus says, leave it to me to conquer kings and nations. You conquer your own lovelessness. So could he be saying the same to us here in Pelsall? Could he be challenging me or you to conquer our own cold heart? Each of these messages is a call to war. But each one also includes a promise of reward. And in each case, the reward that's promised points us forward to the end of the book of Revelation. To each of these churches, Jesus says, fight your battle. And as you fight, keep your eyes on what's ahead of you. Keep in mind the eternal inheritance that's ahead of you. Here to Ephesus he says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Right at the beginning, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship with God in his garden. The end of Revelation tells us about another garden of God, a new heaven and earth. And there we are told, God and his people will again enjoy perfect fellowship. And so here is the encouragement for us. Jesus says, if your hearts are hard, if you're not close to me, if your fellowship has gone cold, then fight your battle. Go to war on your loveless heart. And as you do, know that one day, you will experience a love you could never imagine. You will know fellowship with me beyond your wildest dreams. And you'll share it 
with brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Isn't that worth fighting for? We've heard Jesus speaking to his church. And in just a moment, we are going to respond together as a church. But first, we're going to take a moment to respond individually to what we've heard Jesus saying. We're going to do that quietly, just where we're sitting. So if Jesus has put his finger on any lovelessness in your heart, this is the time to quietly confess it to him and repent of it as he asks us to do. So let's take a moment to give ourselves opportunity to do that. Father, we hear this severe warning and we want to take it seriously. We don't want to be comfortable with cold hearts, with any degree of coldness in our hearts. We do want to take up this call to be victorious, to conquer lovelessness. And we also want to hear the promise of reward. That we can enjoy unhindered love and fellowship with you and with our brothers and sisters for eternity. And so we don't ultimately want to close today by thinking about our failure. We want to look to you and your great love. Poured out without measure on us as your people. Father, we realize it's only by understanding your love that we will ever respond with love ourselves. It's only your love to us that can warm up our hearts. And so we look to you and to your love. Amen. Let's respond then together as a church. We're going to do that.